The Tom Woods Show, episode 1509. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. All right, for all you men out there listening to this program, I don't normally believe in peer pressure, except in this case. Can you really be a Tom Woods Show listener if you're not using Harry's razors with all the rest of us? We use it because we all get a close, comfortable shave. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your special trial offer by going to harrys.com slash woods. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. Very glad to be joined once again by Jared Casey, who is formerly but now retired professor of philosophy at University College Dublin. He's the author of numerous books, and we're going to be discussing his most recent called Zap, Free Speech and Tolerance in the Light of the Zero Aggression Principle. Jared, welcome back. Thank you very much, Tom. Well, it wasn't too long ago we were talking about your previous book on political thought, and now you've got a brand new one, Zap, which uh, <laughs> the subtitle Free Speech and Tolerance in the Light of the Zero Aggression Principle. Uh, by the way, why do you use zero aggression principle instead of non-aggression principle? Is it because it's a cooler acronym? Uh, to some extent, and also because uh, I discovered from a rhetorical point of view, the minute you introduce any negative element into a statement, or a sen- it reduces comprehension by 50%. Oh, so saying zero is better than saying none. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, in fact, if you if you introduced, I guarantee you, if you introduce two zeros into a sentence, you'll you'll reduce comprehension by about seventy percent, and three will mean people won't understand you at all. So it's not just it's not just sort of stylistic. It really has to do with communication. Okay. All right. I was wondering about that. All right. Well, now I got my answer. <laughs> okay. So. Another book on free speech. I've had uh, I can't remember now. I can't remember the guy's name, but I, d- I did have a somebody else who had just written a book on free speech. On yours is rather different, even though you have more or less the same conclusions. Yours are much more hardcore. But just as you point out in the early part of the book, there is need for some justification for a book on this. What's different about yours as compared to other ways people have looked at this? Well, um, I think I'm correct in saying this, but what I tried to do was to link the free speech section with the section on tolerance. And I, I can't remember. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I, I say this in my in my uh, foreword, but I don't remember seeing that being done before. And uh, so, so the way I argue is, I mean, I'm well aware that there are many books on free speech, and indeed I make that point myself uh, in the, again in the foreword. I think that one of the ways, one of the points I'm trying to make is that if you're making a case for free speech, you can do it in two basic ways. You can do it ad hoc. You can do it on the fly, as it were, making up the rules as you go along. And that's not particularly satisfactory. And in fact, it tends to be the case that if you do that, those in power are the ones who get to make the rules. And if you're not in power, it means that your free speech isn't protected and everybody else's is. So we need to make we need a principle basis for doing this. And my challenge on page six of my book is to say to somebody, if you don't like the way I'm doing it, fair enough, that's that's grand. Right. Uh, but you're either stuck with the ad hoc approach or you're going to have to come up with some other principle approach. And if you got one, I'd like to see what that is. So the second point, then, is it struck me as I was this is part actually of a, of a larger project. The and there are two more books coming out. That all of the stuff on diversity and inclusion on equality, which, you know, is is all the rage these days, uh, every university has a diversity officer and so on, is actually in itself a form of intolerance. And I, I see those both linked together and grounded on the same sort of principle. So I thought it would be a good idea to bring them together uh, into one small book. It's, it's a small book, uh, short, I think, and relatively punchy. 
All right. I think most people listening are familiar enough with the what we'll now call the zero aggression principle. And then you say the corollary of that or the a maxim that's derived from that is the my house, my rules maxim. Now, by the way, this is – I'm getting us on a tangent a bit here, but where some, let's say – I don't know, anarcho-socialists just go berserk because they say this just goes to show that anarcho-capitalism isn't really anarchism because look at this. Look at all these rules. The property owner gets to be a tyrant over everybody. <laughs> uh, so when I saw that, I thought, oh, they're going to love this one. But it just explain, I think it's, it's probably self-evident, but my house, my rules, and then how this applies to the free speech question. Well, Okay, so one argument against, say, a libertarian position of free speech is that people can say anything anywhere, anytime. And the answer is, well, yes, but there are actually limitations. And so, again, in my foreword, I say that, you know, free speech fundamentalists won't be happy with, with my approach because the my house, my rules means that, first of all, while you can say what you like on your own property or on the property of others with their permission, you have no right to demand that others make their property available to you. So, for example, you have no right to demand that the Washington Post gives you a column or even publishes your letter. And therefore, there, this, this, if you like, gives a, a at least some form of restriction on, if you like, I don't know, an absurd level of free speech, meaning so that you can demand uh, positively that others facilitate you in saying what you want to do. And the example I give is fairly straightforward, and I think most people would appreciate this. So suppose you invite some somebody over to your house, and you're you know you have a dinner party and you're having a pleasant conversation, and somebody starts talking about something that's uh, that's offensive or gross. Um, I don't know what you would do, but I would ask the person to come help me in the kitchen, and then I'd say, look, this is not a good idea. It's making the rest of my guests uncomfortable. And the person said, well, hey, I thought you were libertarian. What's all this free speech stuff? And I go, well, you can speak as freely as you like, but you go, if you want to keep talking about like this, you're going to have to do it outside my front door, right? And off you go. So that's that's the my house, my rules. And that applies to all sorts of property. If I have a business or I run a university uh, or have a newspaper, the same thing applies. Okay, so that then helps us to account for why it's all right for certain venues to prohibit certain types of behavior. So, for example, the the old chestnut about shouting fire in a crowded theater. Yes. <laughs> well, this is easily resolved. This is not a matter – that was always used as an example of how – you see, nobody really believes in absolute free speech because we wouldn't let you shout fire in a crowded theater. Oh, <laughs> but <laughs> – yeah. But of course, as Rothbard points out and others before him pointed out, the, the issue there is the private property rights of the theater owner who presumably <laughs> has a restriction on causing a disruption in his theater. Absolutely. And it is his theater, so he just imposes that rule. No problem. No government involved. Well, not, not only that, but I mean, you, you can't say roll up, roll up, get your hamburgers here and open up a hamburger stand and, you know, or open a sort of have a, a, a philosophical discussion at the back of the theater while other people are, are trying to watch the film. I mean, when when you go to the cinema, what you do is you buy a ticket and that ticket is, from a legal point of view, a license. And that license entitles you to the quiet enjoyment of the film for a limited period of time and pretty much nothing else. Okay, so it's not only a question of shouting a fire. By the way, uh, what happens if a fire does break out? <laughs> Clearly, you would like to shout fire. <laughs> but anyway, under normal circumstances, uh, all you're entitled to do is to sit there quietly 
and uh, and watch the movie. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the conditions aren't strictly enough applied. So I notice now a lot of people insisting on using their mobile phones, not to make phone calls necessarily, although that's happened, but also to check things out. And you see these lights flashing on and off all over the auditorium. Those people should be forthwith forcibly ejected. Okay, but yeah, so that's very straightforward. I mean, we we all do this. I mean, the owner of a shopping mall, for example, will have um, uh, will have rules and regulations. So, for example, if you want to sell raffle tickets or you want to do ad hoc advertising by walking up and down uh, the concourse, you're going to have to get permission from the owner the, or the owners of the shopping mall in order to do that. Otherwise, you're violating their property rights. Let's say something about now something controversial because I think most people probably. Not as many as I would have thought some years ago, but I still think, at least certainly in the United States, most people do believe that free speech at least has something to do with what it means to be an American, and they feel some kind of philosophical attachment to it. But then the challenges come up because it's easy to say I favor free speech when the subject matter is what should the tax rate be or you know what's today's weather. No problem there. But then you get into the hard cases for some people, and – that's where we get into so-called hate speech. Now, this category of hate speech, what can we say about that? Because some people would say the reason we favor free speech is that we want competing points of view to be in the marketplace of ideas, and then we sift through it and we some, we reach some kind of a consensus that we hope is close to the truth. But they would say, what possible benefit do I get listening to somebody prattle on and on about some national group that he doesn't like. I mean, there's no benefit to us. So therefore, the purported benefits of free speech are not really being lived up to here. So then what is the harm in banning that? That would be the way they would think. And how would you answer? Okay. I mean, that's that's a reasonable point. I mean, first of all, I would say, where, where are you listening to this person prattling on and on about some national group? If it's on the radio, turn it off. Okay. If it's in your house, ask them to leave. Okay, if you're attending a public meeting, then ask the person in charge of the public meeting whether this is permissible or not. So there are ways of controlling that. Um, nonetheless, it is the case. The problem there is, you see, is that 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 seems fine, right? And but there's an assumption here that we can all identify what is and what isn't hate speech, and it turns out that this is an alarmingly wide account. Okay, so so many things that I would not consider to be hate speech, other people do. Right. So if and again, it all depends on who is in control and who makes the rules and determines what is and what isn't hate speech. And it will, it will turn out again that if we have an unprincipled account here of free speech, that largely uh, speaking, those in power will be the ones who determine what is and what isn't hate speech. And it turns it will turn out and indeed is turning out uh, that merely saying things that are would seem to be reasonably uncontroversial, like, for example, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, could actually get you into trouble now in the United Kingdom. That could be considered to be transphobic, right, and a form of hate speech, even though you could say this in the course of a discussion and, and be very careful as you, to say that I don't intend to signify hatred of anybody, nor am I endorsing any violence uh, or any discrimination against people. But nonetheless, it seems to me true that this is the case. And and we're increasingly, in, I mean, one of one of the reasons this book could have been twice as long if I actually included all of the examples I collected on that. And so you see that if if you don't, I mean, the the cost, as it were, yes, you're going to get uh, trash. That's that's one of these things. But that's the cost of a free society. Right. And by the way, I mean, it, it's easy to say this. And somebody might say, well, that's easy for you because you're not the one on the receiving end. But I have been on the receiving end. And almost anybody in our business has been on the receiving end of nonsense like this. I have a rule, which is that in any um, 
in any comment section. I never read beyond the fifth or sixth comment <laughs> because after that they go crazy. Well, I I think if you're lucky, it's it's the fifth or sixth. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, every once in a while, a comment section fills me with hope. Every once in a while, there'll be some nonsense article, and I'll think, oh, the comments are going to be dreadful. And the comments are just piling on the guy. And I think, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, every now and again, we get something like that. Can we say something about, even though it's not directly related to free speech, it's a, it's a let's say, a close cousin, and that is hate crime laws, hate crimes, not hate speech, yeah. but hate crimes. Because here, I can understand the motivation behind somebody who says there's something – yes, I understand that somebody who is killed because you know out of a robbery, a, a, a robbery gone wrong, or somebody who's killed because he's hated by the killer, I grant that they're both equally dead and it, it won't make the first person feel any better to know that – the robber had no hard feelings toward him. I mean, I get that they're both equally dead, but there does seem to be something especially odious about somebody who goes and commits a violent crime out of sheer hatred for a group identity that that person holds. And 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 this is our way in society of indicating our extreme displeasure at people who hold those attitudes. So why can't society in this way indicate its displeasure with people who harbor these kinds of, of resentments? Well, I mean, uh, they, you know, that's a very good point. And indeed, uh, you're right in saying they're odious. But the again, we have to come back to what I think is one of the um, basic distinctions in libertarianism, which is that between the legal and the moral. Um, so hatred is is not a good thing. OK, um, <laughs> it's uh, it's apart from anything, apart from any any actions that might lead to on the on the on the part of the person who hates, it's actually corrosive of the hating person himself. But the point has to do with the crime. And so the question here is you have to distinguish in a, in a crime between the intention, what it is that the person intends to do, and the motive, which is why they intend to do it. And the law has always made that sort of distinction. In other words, if, if I if I act so as to, if I intend to cause grievous bodily harm or to kill somebody, and I kill somebody, that's murder, if that can be proved. My reason for so doing, whether it's because I want their money uh, or because I hate the way they look or because of their nationality and so on, is legally speaking irrelevant. Morally speaking, of course, it is entirely relevant. But the problem is it's not the law's function to punish us for our attitudes, however much our attitudes might be reprehensible, provided they don't find expression. And the point is, that all of these all of these things, in other words, all of these crimes, these hate crimes, are crimes anyway. Okay. It's just that the hatred element is being punished. And the hatred element is a thought element. And so it turns out that hate crime is actually a form of thought crime. Okay. And whatever we think about it morally speaking, legally speaking, that's not something that is actually punishable or should be. All right, let's take a quick break, come right back. All right, folks, there is a reason that Harry's is the official razor of the Tom Wood Show. People have been shaving for probably 5,000 years. And the ancient Greeks didn't need gimmicky features like flex balls or heated handles, and neither do you. You just need sharp, durable blades, and that's what Harry's gives you. And I'll tell you, I used to use a blade, and I gave up because I just thought I wasn't any good with them. I would be a bloody mess. I never got a really good shave. Whereas with Harry's, even when I'm shaving with the grain, I'm getting an amazingly close shave. I can't understand how this is happening. 
Harry's represents a return to the essential, quality, durable blades at a fair price, just $2 per blade. And there's no risk to you for trying them out. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. But you'd have to be a deranged lunatic to want a refund because these are great. Well, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com woods. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy on the go. Go to harrys.com woods to start shaving better today. Now, no discussion of this topic would be complete without making reference to universities. Now, your experience, of course has primarily been with universities in Ireland, I suppose, but you have some experience uh, here and there. Now, I don't know what the climate is like over there. I do know what the climate is like here. Maybe Ireland is 15% more sane than the United (laughs) States. I honestly don't know. In fact, can we just start there? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I've been retired for three or four years, and so I can't really comment on it, what it's now. But it was moving in in Ireland. Sort of follows a kind of a lag behind uh, Britain to the to the east of us, and the United States to the west. So there's always a sort of a time gap. It used to be about ten to fifteen years, but now, of course, with uh, communications being what they are, it's much quicker. So at the time I retired, it the situation here wasn't anything like as bad as it is in some of the institutions I read about in the United States or indeed in the UK. I couldn't say for now, although my, you know, my, my colleagues, some of those who still speak to me, uh, <laughs> will have told me uh, sort of stories. And institutionally, I have to say that the, the uh, university has moved into the kind of, uh, you know, radically politically correct uh, views uh, and so on. So maybe the students are lagging behind the university authorities here rather than leading them as they tend to do in the United States. Well, let's talk about the the issue of, let's say, uh, having controversial speakers on campus. Yep. If I have my own private university, I obviously, or well, it's obvious to me that I can decide who gets to speak and who doesn't in the same way that if the person comes to my home and wants to harangue me, I can show that person the door or not invite that person in the first place. But do you think it gets slightly more complicated when the institution itself is, uh, rather than, let's say, public, let's say government-run or government-funded? How does that affect this? Well, see, that's where the problem is. I mean, if I, again, okay, so if, it, if it's my home, it's my it's my property, I can make all the decisions myself. The trouble is that most universities, even ostensibly private universities, are in receipt of large wadges of government money. And therefore, they've given hostages to fortune. And therefore, they they have to decide, you know, uh, what they're prepared to do. Uh, so, it, it, the you know, he who pays the piper calls the tunes. If the government is supplying you with a large amount of money, then it gets to say uh, what can and can't be done. And that's really a problem. But so the 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 um the simple case is where an institution is completely private, and there uh, the owners of the university get to determine exactly what can and cannot be done on their property. That's very simple. In almost but in almost every institution, okay, to the best of my knowledge, the university is in receipt of money either directly or indirectly via sort of student grants, and therefore it's very difficult for them even if they were prepared to do so, to stand up, uh, as it were, for free speech. Now, let's say, for the sake of argument, let's set aside the issue of public versus private institutions. Let's say everything's private. In that case, it's an open and shut case. I can make the decision. 
about, I would say, the, the university president or the board of trustees or whatever. They can decide who speaks and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. But but sometimes I hear even some libertarians saying things like, well, such and such is a private institution. They can do what they want. But yeah, we all get that. You know, like I'm, old, I'm older than six years old. I understand how my principles apply to particular situations. But I'm still allowed to have an opinion about how they're running their institution. You know, I, I, it just astonishes me how many people, like if I'm talking about Facebook and what their policies are, will just tell me, well, it's a private company. It doesn't matter. Well, but yeah, yeah, duh, I know it's a private company. You're saying, <laughs> I mean, that's like, by the way, that's like the most left-wing caricature of libertarianism where you can't even criticize corporations, right? When did libertarians ever say we can't criticize corporations, right? So these people, these people whose entire argument is it's a private company, they're falling into the dumbest caricature of libertarianism. Don't you people believe in the free market? That's a corporation. It can do what it wants. Yeah. Yes, I do believe in the free market. I'm not saying somebody (laughs) should take them off in handcuffs. I'm saying that I personally think it's a dumb policy. It's a counterproductive policy. It's a harmful policy. It's a dumb policy. It's it's based on on ridiculous motives. And so when it comes to a university, I get if it's a private university, they can invite anybody. But I can still say the university has a particular mission, and that university is not carrying out that mission as effectively as it would be if it invited a broader range of speakers. Why is that so controversial? I have no idea. I, I, I try to um, make a distinction. I do this in several places through the book between what one has a right to do and whether one is right to do it. Okay, and those seem to me it seems to me those are two different things. So to, that's to, to come back to your point. Of course, the owners of an institution have the right to do as they wish with their property, but it doesn't mean that we are forbidden from judging and making a comment as to whether it is right for them to do so. And of course, given the very nature of a university, I would say, um, you know, if you if you a university for me is of its very nature a place where contrasting views and opinions can be freely expressed and freely argued and and robustly at that. And if you turn it into a sort of global safe space where nothing possibly controversial can be said about anything, then you've anesthetized it. It becomes it's dead. It's it's an institution that's dying on its feet, and that may in fact already be happening. So, yes, uh, people have a right to do with the property as they wish, but whether it is right to do so, we are actually free to make judgments about that. Now, you said something in the beginning about tolerance, and you note in your book that tolerance, like I mean, let's say in the 18th century, toleration or 17th century, toleration basically meant we shouldn't kill people for holding this view. But you notice that when you say something like that, if like if I were to say, if let's say you and I both like Beethoven, but you also like Mozart and I didn't. And I said, well, I'll tolerate his admiration for Mozart. I'm not exactly celebrating <laughs> your <laughs> admiration for Mozart. So the very use of the word toleration, it doesn't necessarily imply that I'm holding my nose, but it, it does sort of suggest that I'm dealing with people who have views, let's say, at the very least, that are different from my own and who embrace ideas that are different from my own and that would not be my first choice. But I'm saying that we ought not to have legal sanctions against them. So there is a kind of negative element to the idea of tolerance because if it, were, if it weren't just that, then we would just use the word acceptance. We wouldn't use the word tolerance. Now, how is this relevant to your argument? Well, no, that's absolutely correct. I mean, uh, my, one of my chapters is called Tolerance is Intolerable. 
And we've we've moved. I mean, I, I first became aware of this about 10 years ago at a colloquium in the university uh, when, you know, I was expressing certain views that surprise, surprise, weren't particularly popular <laughs> with some of my colleagues. And while I was perfectly happy to debate with others who had other views, it seemed they seemed to be suggesting that it, it wasn't proper for me to express my views because I wasn't validating or accepting or honoring or whatever it might be the other person's views. And I and I pointed out that well, that's that's that makes nonsense of discussion because um, tolerance, by its very nature, as you've just pointed out, has an ineluctable sort of negative element. It may be mild, it may be severe, right? But any statement, by the way, this hasn't. This is not just about political or religious views or social views. It has to do with any truth statement whatsoever. And if I make any statement, any any truth claim, okay, I cannot at the same time and in the same respect tolerate. Uh, something which is contradictory or contrary to that. That's what I call intellectual tolerance. Practical tolerance means that when we live in a world where there are many, many views and many different ways of living, we have to be, be prepared to find that people are doing things that we find, you know, either mildly distasteful or even completely obnoxious. Nonetheless, I'm arguing that as long as they're not violating the zero aggression principle, I am obliged to tolerate them. That is to say, that not to like them, or to accept them or to think that they're good or praiseworthy. Uh, in fact, I may even say all of these things, that they're not praiseworthy and that they're not good. But nonetheless, I am prepared to tolerate it. Now, that has become a controversial uh, position, which is, is quite striking. Uh, in the book, I think I mentioned, case just for your viewers there, because you'll be familiar with this in the United States, the South Park episode. I don't normally watch South Park, but I came across this episode once. It's uh, series six, episode 14, and it's called The Death Camp of Tolerance. And it has it should be it should be required viewing for anybody who thinks seriously about this because a apart from being well slightly gross so we can forget about those elements but then that's hilariously funny it, it it makes the point that you've just made and some so somebody who's trying to get fired by having what he thinks are unacceptable views finds that his um his board of management and the parents this is a teacher in the school are so tolerant that nothing he can do. <laughs> will cause them to fire him. And eventually he loses patience and he says, what do I have to do in order to get fired? You know, just because you tolerate something doesn't mean you have to approve of it, right? And they have the museum, they have a museum of tolerance here. And he said, well, you know, if it, if tolerance meant acceptance, it wouldn't be called a museum of tolerance, it'd be called a museum of acceptance, right? So we, we've, we've, we've moved in the last probably 10 to 15 years in a very worrying direction where tolerance now is not only a virtue, is actually, from the liberal point of view, a something of a vice, which is really, really disturbing. Well, here's maybe one of the most controversial claims of the book. And then you, you restate it in your afterword. You say, the currently fashionable dogmas of diversity, inclusion, and equality are forms of practical intolerance. Now, I'm going to require you to defend that statement right here. <laughs> okay. So what, what does it mean? Again, if we're talking about tolerance, not a problem. But diversity, inclusion, and equality, while they sound fairly uh, innocuous, uh, indeed anodyne, actually, they they result in the unwillingness of the establishment to accept the free choices of individuals who are not violating the zero aggression principle. So it's not enough that you don't, you know, you're not prepared to use violence or force against somebody. You must be prepared to to accept that, for example, the use of quotas 
in, say, the allocation of university places can be done appropriately, say, on the basis of somebody's skin color or nationality or whatever, or their socioeconomic class. And that that objecting to that, if you like, puts you beyond the pale, right? Uh, and if you act in on, on the basis of the principle that you're prepared to accept the equality of all human beings and make your decisions, you know, to use your property as you wish, then you can be required now, in many cases, by law to act on principles uh, that you simply do not accept. And that's a form of practical intolerance. The, the other people are not prepared to accept your free choices here, which are not, in fact, aggressive. It seems to me, getting to the end of this book here, where you are have just made a pretty strong case for everybody should have absolute freedom of speech, you know, obviously bounded by the my house, my rules principle, all that. But in other words, there shouldn't be state-imposed restrictions on speech. Yes. I think the obstacle that you're facing right now, that we're facing, is that the people who want to impose the restrictions cannot imagine that they could ever be on the receiving end of such restrictions. <laughs> they, they feel like their people are firmly in charge of the regimes of the world. And incidentally, they believe this even when they have persuaded themselves that Trump means the end of the world. They know in their heart of hearts that's not true. They know that their people really cling to the inner levers of power basically everywhere. And so, of course, it's not going to trouble them because they're never going to be on the receiving end of this. Uh, and in a way, it was it kind of reminds me of all the anti-war protests in the 60s. And then the draft goes away and the protests kind of disappear. I mean, if, at first it was where our blood is boiling with moral outrage at what you're doing in the war. OK, the war was no less horrible after they got rid of the draft. And yet the protest disappeared. It doesn't affect me. <laughs> so suddenly my righteous outrage has disappeared. Well, so likewise, Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's really the issue uh, is, is that the people doing it don't find themselves fearing that this power will be turned against them someday. So I don't know how you change that. No, I don't know either. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right, of course. And as I said, to come back to a point I made earlier in our discussion, uh, when I'm putting forward the zero aggression principle as the basis for this, I say, you know, if you don't accept it, you're going to have to tell me what you're going to. If you if you don't accept that, that's fine. It's a, it's, a, it's a free country. It's a free world. But here's the thing. If you reject the zero aggression principle, what you're doing is you're doing two things. First of all, you're saying it is in order to use force of violence to prevent somebody from doing something or to force somebody to do something, which is not uh, in the case of preventing them, which is not an act of aggression on their part, or forcing them to do something that they'd rather not do. And you say, well, somebody might say, well, that's fine, because that's other people. And I say, well, hang on a second. There's a second side to this, which is that you also have to be prepared to accept that others, if you don't accept the zero aggression principle, others are perfectly entitled to use force or violence to prevent you from doing things which are not violent or aggressive, okay, and to force you to do things that you do not want to do. Are you prepared to accept that in principle? And I normally, that this is when I have conversations with people, this is normally when I get silence. And I say, you have to be prepared to live with that. Now, the truth is in a rhetorical environment in which we live, you're absolutely correct that those on the other side who are all in favor of imposing all of these restrictions on us can never see themselves as being in a situation where they will be on the other side and other people will be imposing restrictions on them. But I would say, first of all, you must have an astonishing ignorance of history if you think that's the case, okay? <laughs> because you don't have to go back that far to find cases like that. And secondly, and if there's one thing that's true, it's that things never stay the same. And there is no guarantee that you 
or your your friends or your pals or whatever they might be will always be in power, will always be the ones controlling this. And then you will find yourself in a situation where you're on the receiving end. And when you find yourself in that situation, don't come crying to me. Don't don't then take the high moral ground and say, oh, you can't do this to us because you've accepted the principle that it is right and proper to do it. All right. Well, the book is Zap, Free Speech and Tolerance in the Light of the Zero Aggression Principle. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1509. Uh, before we go, can you say a little something about what your hoped-for schedule is in releasing the other volumes? Yes. Well, I the I just signed the contract on the next book, um, so it should be out in March. It's called After Me Too, <laughs> so you might guess what it's about. So it, there's really a trilogy in progress here. So the Zap book is the first one, and the the After Me Too will be the second one. And both of these are sort of practical books. They deal with sort of practical problems in in the inner world. The third book is going to be a more sort of reflective and philosophical work. And it's going to be about, if you like, working out the dynamics of social and cultural change. Uh, and I'm going to be, you know, using some heavyweight thinkers in there and so on. So the first two, if you like, are fun books. At least I hope they are. And so on. And the second one's going to be a bit more kind of philosophical, trying to redeem my, my what's left of my reputation as a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll very much look forward to those. So I hope uh, folks will check out tomwoods.com slash 1509, where they can click through and uh, get a copy of this book for themselves. You never, ever, ever be bored reading a book by Jared Casey. That's just a fact. Never, ever. So uh, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you very much, Tom. All right, folks. Tomorrow, if all goes well, we'll have Scott Horton back on, and he'll be talking to us about what in heaven's name is going on with Syria and the Kurds and the hysteria. So I just thought to myself, what the heck am I even thinking not having Scott on to clear this up for us? So that's going to be tomorrow's episode number 1510. And uh, if you like and appreciate what I'm doing over here, I would love to have you as a member of the Tom Woods Show Elite, which is a group of wonderful, like-minded, delightful, smart folks you're going to enjoy getting to know. Plus, I have many, 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 many bonuses that were carefully crafted just for you. So head over to supportinglisteners.com to fill my heart with gladness, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.